All right, let's jump right in. Friends, Recording welcome to Torah Studies. Torah Studies is where we hang out together and explore some deep themes in the Torah portion each and every week. Why? Because this is how we roll. This is how we, this is how we stay connected with Torah, with Yiddishkeit, with Judaism. This is how we stay inspired on a weekly basis. Every week, we have a different theme. So this week's theme, as we'll explore in, uh, throughout tonight's session, is all about the struggle between logic and faith. Logic and faith. So I'll give you an example. Actually, I'll tell you a story. Before we get to logic and faith, I want to talk about logic and mazel. Raise your hand if you know, if you know the word mazel. Who knows mazel, right? I'm sure you've all heard mazel tov, right? Mazel tov. What does mazel mean? Mazel is typically translated as luck, like mazel tov, good luck or good fortune. Mazel is kind of like the, the fortune that we have or perhaps don't have. They tell a story about two friends. Two friends, one was named Mazel and one was named Seichel. So I'm going to do a translation again. Mazel is the one with all the luck and Seichel is the one with all the logic, the one that's very thought out. So two, guys, two fellows traveling together, Mazel and Seichel. And they're traveling for a while, and, and uh, Mazel turns to Seichel, and he says, I'm getting tired from all this journey, from all this walking. I think I am going to lie down right here and take a nap. And Seichel says, are you crazy? Are you kidding me? You're lying down in the middle of a road. How is lying down in the middle of a road? The guy was about to lie down in the middle of a road. He says, lying down in the middle of a road, that's, that's meshuggah, that's crazy, that's reckless. A car is going to come, God forbid, right, and not see you. Too dangerous. He says, I don't know, Mazel. I don't, I don't agree with your decision making at all. I am going to pull off. I'm going to go and, take a, and lie down at the, uh, at the side of the road. And so it was. Mazel was in the middle of the road and Seichel was in the side. Fast forward a few minutes, 15 minutes later, a truck comes barreling down the road and the truck is going way too fast to stop in time. And it sees Mazel, it sees somebody lying down in the middle of the road, quickly swerves, doesn't see the other guy, hits Seichel and that's the end of Seichel. And so what's the moral of the story? Don't worry, this never happened. But what's the moral of the story? It's good to have Seichel, it's good to have logic, but you need a lot of Mazel also. You need some, you need some Mazel in life as well. All right, that's about Mazel and Seichel, but tonight we talk about another duality, which is, um, which is Seichel, which is logic, but also faith, taking a leap of faith. So I want to begin with a, um, an analysis of an English phrase. You know, when people talk about love, they talk about falling in love, right? You've heard the expression falling in love, yes? Falling in love. All right, I'm gonna ask you a simple question. It's one of these clutch, clutch not clutch, maybe also clutch, but klutz kashas. It's like obvious question that no one asks. Why do we call it falling in love? Why don't we say striding in love or power walking in love or strolling in love or I don't know, anything else? Why falling in love? All right, I'll give you the answer. Because falling connotes something that is out of control, right? Falling is, evokes this idea of being out of control, you know, not fully 
not fully in control. Because love, as much as there is logic to love, the, 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 the overarching or the overwhelming energy of love transcends the logical, transcends the rational. Right? You could have a relationship that makes sense on paper, and that's great. But that doesn't tell us if there's love or passion in the relationship. That is an intangible that goes beyond logic. So what I'm trying to say is that there are two factors. You need, obviously, logic. You need rationale. You need reason. You need seichel. But you also need a good, healthy dose, a good, healthy dose of, of, um, of, 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 of faith, something that goes beyond logic. When I say faith, that which goes beyond logic, uh, super rational or irrational commitment that goes beyond what makes logical sense. We'll see how this plays out in this week's Torah portion in really powerful ways as we explore the major theme of the parasha, the major theme of the Torah portion, which is, as you may know, the, the mitzvah of the para aduma, the red heifer. So let's now jump into the Torah portion. Let's jump into the theme of the Torah portion. Let me introduce the mitzvah of the red heifer. So the Torah says as follows. The Torah says... Me a second. Um, what does the Torah say? The Torah says that when a person becomes, when a person becomes impure, when a person becomes impure by coming into contact with a dead body. So a person passes away, someone else comes in contact with it, that renders the person that came in contact with it ritually impure. So there's only one way you can get out of that state of impurity and become pure once again. And that is, and that is through the sprinkling waters of the paradum of the red heifer. So the way it would work is that there was, I mean, we'll, we'll read it inside. You, you had to have, number one, a red heifer, a red cow, perfectly red cow. Even if it had two, two black hairs and the whole cow was not a perfectly red cow. Um, you take the animal, you slaughter it, you burn it, you take the ashes, you mix the ashes with some other items, and then you put the ashes into fresh spring water, and then you sprinkle that on the person who became impure, and poof, just like that. You do it on the third and seventh days after they contracted the impurity, and after the seven days... They become richly purified through the ashes or the ash water mixture of the red heifer. Okay, sounds perfectly reasonable to me, right? All right, this is the mitzvah. This is the mitzvah of the, of the red heifer. So we're going to explore this, analyze it, and walk away hopefully with some powerful life lessons that we can all apply to our own situations. So I'm going to share my screen. We're going to begin by jumping into the mitzvah as described in the Torah, the red heifer. Um, Make this a little bit bigger, and let's ask Paul. If you're up to it, Paul, please read text number one. God spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the law of the Torah that God commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and have them take for you a perfectly red, unblemished cow, upon which no yoke was laid. And you shall give it to Eleazar, the Kohen, and he shall take it outside the camp and slaughter it in his presence. 
Those are the Kohen shall take from its blood with his finger and sprinkle it toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. The cow shall then be burned in his presence, its hide, its flesh, its blood, with its dung, he shall burn it. The Kohen shall take a piece of cedar wood, hyssop, and crimson wool, and cast them into the burning of the cow. All right, so that is, um, I mean, we've all heard of burning man, right? This would be burning cow, and I guess, and that's, uh, that's what's going on here with this paradum, with this red heifer. Um, and then, of course, you take the, you take the ashes, right? The, the ashes included from the cow, as well as the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the crimson wool. And then you mix it. We, didn't, we don't have the whole mitzvah there, just a few verses excerpted from the, from the parasha, from the Torah portion. You mix it with the fresh spring water, and you sprinkle on the person who became richly pure on, on day three and day seven. And after seven days, they become purified. Now, why did you need to be pure? Just a general knowledge information or general knowledge uh, point. Why did, why did one need to be pure, ritually pure? Well, back in the day, there was a holy temple. And to go to the temple, you needed to be ritually pure. To eat from the temple, from the sacrifices, or to, or to participate in any, any, any of the holy services, you needed to be in a state of ritual purity. So being in a state of ritual impurity was problematic. Now, most cases of ritual impurity just require going to the mikvah, a ritual bath. But when a person came in contact with a dead body, with a dead human body, then it would be a much greater level of ritual impurity, which would require the ashes of the red heifer and this mixture that we're speaking about tonight. Now, there are three types of mitzvah. And if you've studied with me before, if you've taken perhaps um, other classes as well, you, you may have encountered this, this idea, that there are three categories of mitzvot, of Torah law. So one is the category of, that's called mishpatim. Second category, second category are called um, edut. And the third are called chukim. So we have mishpatim, edut, and chukim. What's the difference? And what do these Hebrew words mean? Mishpatim are what we would call civil law. Essentially laws that are rational, laws that pertain to things that make sense. For example, do not kill or do not murder, do not steal. Um, uh, it's, uh, protecting each other and property and safety and all that stuff. So all of the Torah's laws that pertain to things that make a lot of sense, we call those mishpatim. Essentially, as the Talmud says, those are laws that even if we didn't have Torah, hopefully we would have come up with on our own because as decent moral human beings, hopefully we would have figured that out ourselves. That's category one. Category two are called edot. What are the edot? Edot are the mitzvot, the commandments, that we would not have come up on our own. But once we got the mitzvot, once we got those commandments, they make a lot of sense. So for example, these are, a lot of these are the testimonial mitzvot, like um, Shabbat. Observing Shabbat. Why do we observe Shabbat as a day of rest? Because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. So we do the same thing. We work for, we work for six days and we rest on the seventh. So if the Torah didn't mention it, we might not have thought to do it. But once the Torah mentions it, it makes sense. We're emulating God. Rest makes sense. You know, it, it has a, a basis in logic once we have it. Or another example, eating matzah on Passover. The Torah says on Passover, eat matzah. Why? Because it's uh, the original food. It's OG food of the generation of the desert, of the Exodus. Cool. That makes sense. It's kind of cool throwback, a little retro food. It's, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Once you have it, we might not have come up with it on our own. Another example would be 
um, building a sukkah on the holiday of Sukkot. Again, I mean, we could go through all, the mitzvot, all these mitzvot, but you, you get it. These are mitzvot that are not, I would say, you don't find them in other cultures. They're unique to Judaism. So we needed to be uniquely commanded about them. But once we have that commandment, it also makes sense. So category one are the rational laws that we could have come up on our own, come up with on our own. Level two or category two are the laws that we would not have come up with on our own. But once we're given them, they make sense. Category number three are the chukim. Category number three are those laws that even once we have them, they still don't make any sense. For example, the Torah says, don't wear a garment that is woven of wool and linen together. Why not? Beats me. Who knows? Because God said that in the Torah. No wool and linen, right? Why is it something, is it like a fashion faux pas? Is it like, oh my gosh, the red carpet, <gasps> wool and linen, like that's it? They pull the carpet out. Is that what's going on? No, the Torah says wool and linen, not in the same garment. The Torah says don't eat milk and meat together. Unhealthy? Is it bad for your, is it bad for cholesterol? Is it bad for your heart? The Torah just says don't mix meat and milk. Why? It's a chok. Um, and the ultimate example of the chok, of this super rational or maybe even irrational law, is the law of the red heifer. Somebody becomes ritually impure. First of all, what does that mean? Because, because they came in contact with a dead body, so they become ritually impure? Why? Okay, that's one element. But then, how do you get out of it? How do you, how do you become pure once again? How do you become purified? Through the slaughter and the burning of a red cow, perfectly red cow that was never worked in the field, mixed with cedar wood, a hyssop, and, and a crimson wool, all burned into, an, into ashes, and those ashes are mixed with spring water. It's sprinkled on the person on days three and seven, and then they become purified. That makes any sense? You kidding me? How does that make any sense? Right? This is the ultimate example of a chok, of a mitzvah that challenges our logic. Certain mitzvot don't bother the logic. It makes sense. Don't kill, don't steal. Yes, respect each other's bodies and property. Sure, I get that. You want to commemorate uh, Passover, the, 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 the exodus every year with eating matzah? I get it. Makes sense. But you're telling me that somebody that becomes ritually impure, magically through being in contact with a dead body, needs to sprinkle this mixture of ashes and water and then they become purified. I'm just going to raise my hand and say, what is going on here, right? But it doesn't make any sense. So this is the example of a chok, of a mitzvah that challenges the logic. You have to take it on faith. Speaking about faith and logic, it's, it challenges, challenges the, uh, the mind, which begs the question. You see, I'm going to share my screen with you again. And I want to point out a verse that we read, that Paul read, that is very interesting. Okay, this was text one, right? We did this before. Um, and God is telling Moses and Aaron, and he introduces this law by saying, this is the law of the Torah that God commanded. Making it sound like this is the ultimate law of the Torah. I want to tell you this. There are a lot of mitzvot, there are a lot of laws that we could point, out and, point at and say, that is symbolic of the entire Torah. That really captures the essence, the energy of Torah. There are many mitzvot that we could do that with. For example, we could say 
that Torah study. Studying Torah is like, it's the whole Torah, because you study Torah, you know exactly what to do. Okay. A person could say that, you know, we could say that if you desist from serving idols, that's the whole Torah. That makes sense. That's like the mitzvah of the Torah to not serve idols, because serving idols would be an affront to everything the Torah stands for. One could say that tzedakah, charity, is the mitzvah of the Torah, right? It's like giving of what we have to someone else. That's, that captures the generous spirit of the entire Torah. Somebody could say that love your fellow as yourself, the golden rule, right? Love your fellow as yourself. Maybe that's the mitzvah of the Torah. But you're telling me that the ashes of the red heifer mixed with water sprinkled on a person on day three and seven to purify them from a state of ritual impurity from coming in contact with a dead body. That is the law of the Torah? That is the mitzvah of the Torah? You kidding me? How is that the mitzvah of the Torah? And I understand that in the Hebrew it says uh, zot, chukat ha-Torah. This is the chok of the Torah, which makes sense. It's the irrational law of the Torah. But in most translations, and even according to the commentaries, Chukat or chok, although it specifically means an irrational, super-rational mitzvah, it also generally refers to a law of the Torah. And so that by the Torah saying that this is the law of the Torah, this is the mitzvah of the Torah, it seems to kind of lift up this mitzvah as the ultimate embodiment of what Torah and mitzvot are all about. And my question is, how does that make any sense? How is this the ultimate law? By the way, this question that I just asked you is not my own question. It's asked by the classic commentaries, including the Arachaim HaKadosh, the Holy Arachaim, which, who was a, uh, a mystical commentary on the Torah. He asked this question that I just asked. So that's, that's question number one. Question number two. Question number two pertains to King Solomon. King Solomon is known as the wisest of all men. I'm going to share my screen with you. Let's Take a look at a text that substantiates that or that, 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 uh, that expresses that. This is coming from the book of Kings. And let's ask, let's ask Donna Bogatin. Donna, please read text number three from the book of Kings. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceedingly much and largest of heart as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the children of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. And he was wiser than all men, than Etan, the Ezrahite, and Hyman, and Shalkal, and Darda, and the sons of Machol. And his fame was in all the nations round about. So this is where scripture tells us that Solomon was the wisest of all men. I, I, I find it interesting personally that it talks about his wisdom being greater than the wisdom of all the children of the East, right? Eastern, the Eastern wisdoms, Eastern philosophies and, you know, beliefs. Interesting that it's mentioned here, the wisdom of Egypt. We know that there are big sorcerers and other sorts of, you know, um, I don't know, other sorts of wisdom emanating from Egypt. Bottom line is Solomon was very, very wise. And yet, notwithstanding his wisdom, I'm going to go back at text, text number two. Despite the fact that he was very wise, this is what the Midrash says. Um, David, David Lazan, please read text number two from the Midrash. Solomon said, I understood them all, but the passage of the red heifer I analyzed, questioned, and investigated. Thus Solomon states in Kohelet, 
I said that I will become wise, but it was far from me. Look at that. I'm actually making it a little bit bigger. I don't know why it's a little bit small. So here, take a look. Solomon is saying, I understood them all. You know what he means? What do you think he means by under, I understood them all? What, what's all, all what? What do you think? Anybody jump in. All the mitzvot? Good, good. Yes. All of the mitzvot. He says, I understood them all. But there's one mitzvah that just baffles me. And what is it? The passage of the red heifer. In other words, the, the section, the, the verses pertaining to the red heifer. I analyzed, questioned, investigated, garnished, no success. And look at this verse from Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. I said, I, would I will become wise, but it was far from me. I tried to become wise in this mitzvah, but it was too distant, too difficult for me to understand. So what we see here is that although, although King Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, it says, by the way, wisest man, not necessarily the wisest woman, right? But the wisest man who lived, he still couldn't figure out, he couldn't crack the case of the red heifer. Okay, so clearly the red heifer is a very complicated mitzvah. It's a very baffling mitzvah. By the way, I just want to add one more wrinkle to it. Um, there's another interesting uh, piece of the mitzvah, which I mentioned in DPP, Daily Power Parsha, our daily uh, Torah exploration. Might as well give it a, a quick announcement. Every day, 12 noon, we, uh, we explore the, 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 the daily Torah reading. So I mentioned this um, a few days ago. That the Torah says that the person, there, there are various Kohan and various priests that are involved in preparing the red heifer mixture. So you have, um, there's one Kohen, one priest who slaughters the animal. Another one burns the animal. Another one collects the ashes. Another one mixes it with the water. And then finally you have another one who actually sprinkles it up upon the person. The people involved in preparing the red heifer ash water mixture, all of those priests in the process become impure. They become tummy. Now they don't become impure to the level that they would need the red heifer ashes applied because that would create an endless infinite loop of red heifer necessity. They just need to go to the mikvah, but it does render them in a state of ritual impurity. And so here we have another paradox, right? It's like this, this convergence of opposites. The very mixture that makes one pure also makes the one preparing it impure. So one second, it's, it's kind of like, imagine if I told you, because like everyone's been into hand sanitizer, right? Yes? Yes, raise your hand for hand sanitizer. I was just joking about that. You don't have to, right? But hand sanitizer, right? So, hand. so imagine if we would say that, okay, so when a person, like in schools, right? So they, they were like, you know, giving a squirt of hand sanitizer for the kids. The one who applies the hand sanitizer, their hands become unsanitized in the process. It's like, why? Like, we're dealing with hand sanitizer. Like, what's the issue here? It's all hand sanitizer. What's going on? Chaz <laughs> and Ben, jump in. So, when I was growing up, if something didn't make sense, we used to call it a par adam. Oh, look at that. See? <laughs> yeah. Anything that didn't make sense was a paradubah. A paradubah. Perfect. So when the Jewish Theological Cemetery, a seminary, uh, introduced this program called Pararabbis, 
in the 70s. So the rabbi I was working with um, uh, was a very wise man. He called it a paraduma. A paraduma. Rabbi was a paraduma. So, so listen to this. You know, in English, in paraduma. In English, we have a phrase called a red herring. Now you have another phrase called a red heifer. If somebody says something that doesn't make sense, you're like, oh, that's a red heifer. It's a paraduma. Good. So listen, the whole thing doesn't make sense. The whole law doesn't make sense from beginning to end. Why is the person impure? Well, how does the how does the red heifer? Why a red heifer? Why the ashes? Why the crimson wool? Why the hyssop? Why the cedar? Why the burning? Why the ashes? Why the water? Why the sprinkling? Why does the one doing it become impure and the one getting it become pure? None of this makes sense. It's like who's on first? It's like Abbott and Costello almost. Like it doesn't make sense. So again, we have a few issues here. Number one, why is it called the mitzvah of the Torah? It seems like a very side you know, a somewhat obscure mitzvah that only pertains to certain people at certain times if they need it. It doesn't seem to be like the face, the billboard of what a mitzvah is, number one. Number two, King Solomon doesn't understand it. Now, that makes sense that he doesn't understand it because it's really nonsensical. But I want to add one more layer to this. Here's one more layer that, that we haven't talked about yet because there was one person who did understand it. Take a look at text number four. Take a look at text number four. Let's ask um, Donna... Donna Herbert, please read text four from the Midrash. Rabbi Yossi, son of Rabbi Hanina, said, God said to Moses, to you I will reveal the reasoning of the red heifer, but for everyone else it will remain a shukah. Yeah, a chukah. Yeah, so, so God tells Moses, I'm going to let you in on the secret, but everyone else will have no idea what's going on here. So now I need to ask another question. What is this? God is, 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 is giving secrets to... Do you know to... what else doesn't make sense? Do you know what else does... I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting. You know what else doesn't make sense? What doesn't make sense? We call it a para aduma, but the Torah calls it a fara aduma. Oh, right. So we're, we're taught... We're not even pronouncing it. It's we, we change the fate to a pay. What... It, what... Because of, of uh, Begit Tepet and that. Uh, yeah. But, I'm just another so, yeah, so, so here's the deal. So when we're dealing with, when we're dealing with a mitzvah that, that, that is hard to understand, and we want to say, look, there's no reason, there's no rationale, there's no, you can't understand it, fine. Solomon can't understand it, I get it. Fine, I can't get it, I don't understand it either. But now you tell me that Moses understood it, so now we have a problem. Because number one, why is Moses allowed to understand it? Or more precisely, how does Moses even understand it if it's, if it's so illogical or super logical? Number one. Number two, if Moses was given somehow the secret, then how come someone else couldn't get the secret? How come Moses didn't explain it to others? When, Mo, when God told, when God told um, I guess what well, we have here that um, God tells Moses not to share it, but what, the information didn't leak? It didn't leak at all? Like, there's no, re there's no rationale? Why is God only giving the rationale to Moses, but not giving it to Solomon when Solomon was the wisest of all men? It's just a little bit confusing to try to figure out why is it that no one understands it except for Moses. What was special about Moses specifically with regard to this mitzvah? So to understand these questions, we need to look at a classic debate a really interesting debate with regard to the chukim, those mitzvot that are very difficult to understand. 
So when it comes to a chok, chukim is the plural, chok is the singular. When it comes to the chok, when it comes to a mitzvah that we can't understand, what, this is what we call a chakira. Is it because we don't understand it or because it is not understandable? In other words, is the issue in our understanding which would imply or indicate that if we only had more wisdom, then we would be able to figure it out? Or is the issue or the source of this because it's just not understandable? So is it a gavra or a chefza? Is it the person who's lacking the understanding? Or is it the thing itself that can't be understood? Does that make sense? Yes? The two ways of looking at it? So again, is a chok... Right, is a chok something that can't be understood essentially or categorically? Or is it just something that we can't understand, but we can try to, to you know, figure it out to the best of our ability? I want to bring out three different opinions. There are three opinions amongst the medieval philosophers, the Jewish philosophers. We ha- we're going to cite the opinion of Rambam Maimonides, a great philosopher. We're going to cite the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, who was also a great uh, scholar and philosopher. And then we're going to cite the opinion of the Maharal of Prague, the great rabbi of Prague who created the Golem. Each has a different take on it, but each is trying to explain what a chok, what a super rational mitzvah really is. So let's go through it. We have a lot to cover inside. So let's buckle up and we're going to jump right back into the text. All right, here we go. Maimonides. I'll give you the outside version of Maimonides, then we're going to read it inside. Maimonides says, I I like this uh, little header here, Rambam says, the problem is us. (laughs) It's not that the mitzvah is not understandable, it's that we don't understand it. For this, let's ask um, Fred. Where is Fred? Hold on. Why do not? uh, Hey, Fred. Okay, take a look. Text number five, please. Unmute and take it away. The category of mitzvah called chukim, such as the prohibition against wearing wool and linen together, or against eating milk and meat, or the scapegoat on Yom Kippur. Our sages generally do not believe that these matters are entirely without reason or purpose. For that would, for that would render them meaningless. Rather, they believe that there is a cause for them meaning there is some kind of purpose they serve. It it is just that this purpose is hidden from us, either due to the limits of our intellectual intellectual abilities or a lack in our wisdom. Ultimately, every mitzvah has a reason. Every obligation or prohibition serves a purpose. The purpose of some of them has been explained to us such as the prohibition against murder or theft. And the purpose of others has not been explained to us, such as the prohibition against eating a tree's fruit for the first three years, or the prohibition against planting forbidden mixtures. Whenever we find such a commandment where the reason is not understood, it is due to a lack in our own understanding. Perfect. Thank you for reading that. Very clear. So the bottom line is, according to Rambam, when you encounter a mitzvah that challenges the mind, that baffles the mind, he says, know this, 
This mitzvah has a reason, it has a rationale, it has a purpose. It's just that we don't get it. Because we're finite, we're mortal, God's infinite, right? God, God understands it, and we don't understand it. But there is a reason. In other words, every mitzvah makes sense. It's just we don't understand it. And honestly, we may never understand it. But take a look at what he says next in text number six. Because now the question is, well, should we, try, should we even bother? Maimonides, as you might, if you know Maimonides, you'll probably guess his answer. He says, yes, it is a, it is a good thing. It is a mitzvah, if you will. It is a good practice to pursue the meaning of even the chukim to the best of our ability. David, please read if you're up to reading text number six. David, are you up to it? Hold on, uh, don't forget to unmute. Yes. There you go. Okay. Although all the statues of the Torah are divine decrees, it is appropriate to mediate upon them. And whenever it is possible to provide a reason, one should provide a reason. The sages of the early generations said that King Solomon understood most of the rationales for all the statutes of the Torah. So Rambam says, thank you. Rambam says, Maimani says, in Hilchot Temura, right over here, he says that although they are ultimately the mitzvot, although the mitzvot are, sorry, the chuke, the chuke ha-Torah, although the statutes, the super-rational statutes are divine decrees, nonetheless, we are, we are encouraged to meditate upon them and to provide a reason whenever possible. And, and again, I just want to be very clear here. The Rambam's shita, shita means um, position or perspective. The Rambam's shita is that it, that when we understand something, it becomes a much more enriching experience. When you understand what you're doing, why you're doing it, what it does, when you do it, it just makes it that much more meaningful. So, for example, if I tell you, you know, there's a mitzvah to light Shabbat candles. Well, oh, you'll say, okay, cool, why? So, two options. Because God said so, okay. Or because, oh, when you light Shabbat candles... You're taking something of the physical universe and transforming it to light, and you're bringing light into the world, into your space in the world. All, you can speak about symbolism. So which one resonates? Which one feels a little bit more meaningful? Rambam says it's option B. So whenever possible, even if it's one of these you know, out there mitzvot, try your best to find some sort of rationale, some sort of logical explanation, which will then make it that much more enriching and meaningful and, and, a, and a full experience. That's Maimonides. That's opinion. Ray, yeah. So Rambam understood it or didn't? Rambam is saying that we may never understand and will likely not understand all of them. He says even Solomon didn't understand all of them, which we saw before. He didn't know the part. He didn't understand the red heifer. But we should try our best to get something, to figure out something. That's why we study. That's why we do give some rationales for kosher, milk and meat, for shatness, for wool and linen, for even the red heifer. Why? To somehow make it a little bit meaningful, a little bit more settled in the mind so that we, we, we feel a little bit more connected with it. Now, are we going to understand the true and deepest reason for all the mitzvot? No, we're not going to get there. But should we try? We should try. That, this is one of three opinions. That's only the first opinion. 
Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi is going to be our second opinion. He disagrees. He says, fundamentally, he agrees with Maimonides that the issue is us. That we, it's just that we don't understand. Every mitzvah has a rationale, but we don't understand all of them. But he says there's no mitzvah to drive yourself crazy, My, to, to try to figure it out. Maimonides encourages us to keep on learning, keep on pursuing, try to figure out, give rationales whenever possible. Rabbi Yudha Levi says, you don't need to. You don't need to. On the contrary, you shouldn't. If it's a chok, this is from the Kuzari, a great work on philosophy, Jewish philosophy. He says, don't even try. I like that header. Don't even try. All right, let's, um, let's ask Susan. Susan Crone, please read text number seven from the Kuzari. It is God's Torah, and one who accepts it sincerely without theorizing or analyzing it is better off than one who scrutinizes and philosophizes. However, for one who has fallen from this lofty level and has begun philosophizing, it is better to seek a reason for these things, which are rooted in the divine wisdom, than to resort to misconceptions or doubts that ultimately destroy a person. Interesting. There's a little bit of nuance here. Um, thank you for reading that. There's a little bit of nuance. I don't want to get too entrenched in it because really it's about getting a bit of a, a, a classic view of the Jewish philosophers about um, the, the extent to which we should try to understand the mitzvah. But this is opinion number two. He says, you don't need to. You don't need to. It's better to accept the mitzvah sincerely without theorizing or analyzing. It's good. Why, why are we lighting Shabbat candles? Because Hashem said so. Why wrap tefillin? It's in the Torah. If there's a purity of acceptance, that's, that's the best. It's better not to scrutinize and philosophize. But if somebody's already a philosopher... If somebody's already down the path of philosophy, then to leave a person hanging and not give them the philosophical understanding of Judaism would be dangerous because their, their minds are rationalizing the world around them. To leave Judaism without rationale could turn them off from Judaism. So if one is in a place of, rational, of rationale, if one is a, in a place of philosophy, then yes, we should, we should give that person, or, or if that's us, we should pursue the rationales and philosophies of the mitzvot. So this is a second opinion. So Maimonides always encourages the philosophizing and the rationalizing. Kuzari, Rabbi Yudha Levi, says only when necessary. What about the third opinion, the Marala Prague? Here we go. Let's, uh, let's, let's show this one. Um, you know what? Richard, Richard Crone, if you're up to reading the, uh, the third opinion... Here we go, text number eight. And look at the header. You can see already where, the, where this is going. Reasons are imaginary. Look at that. Reasons are fake news. Text eight. Take it away, please, Richard. Okay. These reasons that have been concocted in explanation of the chukah, as though the divine commandments of the Torah were like some kind of self-help book or fantasy. It's inappropriate to assume that God's commandments were given on human terms. Rather, they're the decrees of God who issues decrees unto his nation like a king who issues decrees over his kingdom. That, that's pretty harsh. I didn't say that. That's the morale of Prague. Morale says, you got to, now listen, do not kill, do not steal. You don't need to philosophize. That makes sense. But we're talking about the chukim, right? We're talking about category three mitzvot, the mitzvot that you know, don't make a lot of sense at first glance. He says, oh, 
You want to come up with a reason? You want to rationalize, philosophize? That's your self-help. New Age, I mean, this is going back 500 years, but New Age concoction of like, ooh, this mitzvah means a lot to me because that's like good for an essay. That's good on the SATs. Well, what are you doing? What are you, what are you mishing this? What are you, why are you mixing this with Torah, with, with God's uh, the decrees? God wants to give you the once in a while. Not every mitzvah is a decree. But of the 613, there is a category of mitzvot. You do it because God said, that's it. And to start mixing rationalizations into that takes away from the purity of the mitzvah. So he is anti-rationalizations. I want to give you an example. Um, and by the way, I'm, I'm not criticizing this. I'm just giving you an example of maybe, I can't speak for Maral, but maybe where he would disagree with, with some rationalizations. For example, you know, when it comes to the laws of kosher, the Torah says what types of animals are kosher, what types of birds are kosher, what types of fish are kosher, etc. And, and um, the Torah says that the fish, let's talk about fish. Um, so what type... Some people say all fish, if you have the option of flesh, all fish are trafe. But I, yeah. um, uh, so, so here's the deal. If, so the Torah says that a fish is kosher when it has fins and scales. And some people say, aha, here's why. Because the other fish that don't have fins and scales are the bottom feeders. Right, the bottom feeders. They're, they're on the bottom of the ocean, bottom of the sea, and they're less healthy. They're less healthy. So if you eat those fish... It's not good for you. That's why the Torah says that only fish with fins and scales are kosher. I, would, I cannot speak for, for a maharal, but I could, I could envision a scenario where the maharal of Prague, the creator of the golem, would say, so that's it? That's why God forbids you from eating uh, fish that don't have fins and scales because bottom feeders, because health? You want to reduce Torah to a diet book? Right. What is this? The Sinai diet that we're talking about here? Bestseller and the, uh, the latest fad on Instagram. Are you kidding me? That's what, it, that's what Torah is? It's about, it's about optimizing health and wellness? What about the spirit? What about the divinity of it? What about the fact that it's coming from God as a pure decree? Don't lose the magic by, by trying to analyze everything and make sense of it. So here we have three opinions. We're talking about the same type of mitzvah. Those category three mitzvot that are a little bit outside of our wheelhouse of understanding. Rambam says, pursue it. Ideally, we figure it out. We crack the code and then it resonates. Second opinion was the Kuzari, or Yudha Levi. He says, you don't have to pursue it. You don't have to understand it. But if you're a philosopher and, and you need to understand, then understand this as well or try to understand it. And Maral says, Better not to seek to understand it. Or don't try to analyze it. Don't put it under a microscope. Just accept it as a divine decree. Three different opinions. I want to weigh in on this with an approach. An approach to understand it. It's not necessarily going to bring all three opinions together. But here's an approach. I want to focus on the, the third position that we just read, the Maral. Because the other two, it makes sense. You know, it's good to understand things. And like I said before about Shabbat candles, if somebody tells you just do it because you have to or because God said so, uh, it just doesn't feel maybe as nice as um, here's the reason for it. That, that makes it resonate a little bit more. So let me try to explain a little bit better the position of the Maral. And to understand that we need to understand what I said at the beginning of the class, the dangers of analysis. 
You try to take something and analyze it, sometimes you can destroy its magic. Right? Like back to a relationship. Right? So somebody's in love. Somebody is madly in love with the other person. Um, here's something, here's an interesting observation about love. When a person's in love, then the unusual things that the other person does are cute quirks. Like, oh, it's so funny that they do that, right? Because we're in love. And if a person falls out of love, those unique quirks become annoyances that drive us mad. It's like, I can't stand it. And sometimes in a relationship, what will start off as something you know, cute and, and, and funny will become maddening beyond, beyond measure. Why? It's because the intangible, if you will, right, is missing. It's because the, it's, it's, it's because the intangible falling into love, that, that thing that transcends logic, you can't explain it, it just is, is gone. And what's left is analysis. So you look at the person. How are you doing? What are you doing? Right? How does that make sense? Why would you leave the toilet seat up? Or whatever it is, right? Why would you do that? I don't understand. How does it make sense? Drives me mashuga. Drives me mashiga if you're from certain parts of Europe, right? Drives me bananas. When you analyze, when you try to explain things, when you try to rationalize things, we can get into trouble. So the mind is good. Have you ever heard, though, of the phrase paralysis by analysis? Yeah, you know what that means? It means that you analyze something so much, you can't even move forward. It's like, I can't make a decision because I've weighed the pros and cons, and like, they both make sense. What should I do? I can't move further. You know who are the best decision makers? The ones who don't think too much about it. Those are the best decision makers. It's like, we're going. But what happens if we fail? We'll worry about we'll worry about we'll worry about it then, right? There are people that are very concerned about outcomes and what's gonna happen, but then it inhibits the next taking the next step as opposed to someone who, for whatever reason, whether they choose not to or whether they're just not thinking about it, they're more, if they find it more easy, it's easier to, to just jump in head first without a safety net. I'm not advocating that, but I'm just saying, this is, these are two different personalities. The more cautious, thought out, and the less cautious, throw caution to the wind. You live once, YOLO, right? You only live once, let's just do it, and, uh, and, and we'll see what happens. So here's the deal. There is value in the approach of just doing it. In fact, Nike, knows the power of just do it, it became their slogan, right? So what the Marala Prague is saying is a twist on Nike's slogan. What he would say is just Jew it. That's what he would say. Not just do it, just Jew it. Don't overthink it. Don't try to rationalize it. Don't try to understand it because if you break it down, it's going to lose its magic. Because right now you have the opportunity to engage in an act of submitting to a higher authority, to just letting go and just embracing the other in this relationship, in this divine relationship. Give you a, another relationship example. Yeah, the person you're in love with says, um, you know, I'd like, I'd like this, that, or the other. Let's go for a picnic. 
So say, yes, sure, let's go for a picnic. But what if your response is, so tell me, why, why do you want a picnic? Yeah, why do you want to go on a, on a picnic? Huh? Explain it to me so I can understand it. And then I'll let you know if I agree with you. Do you see how that could get, I'm going to use a word that I don't like to use. You see how that can get irritating or annoying pretty fast? Yes? Why? Because instead of just being with the other person and accepting them for who they are and how they are and what they are and what they like, etc., you're trying to analyze and break it down and make sense of it. And it can destroy the magic. It can destroy the magic of the relationship. Let's apply this to God. God says, I love you. Just don't wear wool and linen together. And so we say, but why not? What's wrong with wool and linen? If I explain it to you, it's going to ruin the moment. Just don't wear wool and linen. That's okay. In that, you have plenty of mitzvot that you do understand. But there's a collection, category three of mitzvot, that transcend logic, that transcend rationale. There's a beauty in those type of mitzvot. Just doing it because your beloved loves it. Just because your loved one loves that or doesn't love that. So which restaurant should we go to? Right? I'm in the mood of whatever. It's not analyzing it. It's not trying to rationalize it. It's not trying to philosophize. You philosophize my restaurant choice. You know what? Who wants to go out? Right? What movie are we going to? If we're going to have a 30-minute, you know, pull out all the Rotten Tomatoes reviews and whatnot and try to figure this out, it may just lose, we may be losing the moment. It's just not going to work if we're in our heads. Sometimes the head is the greatest kryptonite to the connection. So yes, we can be cerebral, we can be like in our heads most of the time, but sometimes, sometimes it ruins the magic. Um, I see my mom is typing, how many chukim are there? I'm not sure. Out of the 613, how many would be categorized as chukim, super rational? I don't know. I wonder if there's someone who breaks it down with an exact count. We can, I would say, consult with uh, Reb Google, see if there's anything online that anyone published with that analysis. Ray, jump in. Okay, so um, you say it could be a, a, a misconception. All right, so, all right, I don't have meat and milk, but I have a friend, they're Yemenite, that they feel you can have chicken and milk. Now, that's their conception. Mine is different. So, what's, does that mean they're okay? No, what I, I'm, not, I'm not weighing in. One second, I just want to be clear. I'm not weighing in on any one particular person's observance or interpretation. That's not what I'm, I'm, not, I'm not commenting on that. That's not tonight's class. What I'm just saying is like this. When it comes to understanding a mitzvah, right? The Torah says, don't eat from a fruit tree in the first three years. What do I do with that? Do I start, so why is it that we're not supposed to eat from a fruit tree in the first three years and try to understand it? Or, as the morale says, don't mess, the, don't mess with the magic. Just have this pure moment of connection with God without needing to put it under a microscope. There are plenty of mitzvot that you can put under a microscope. Let this one remain a little bit magical. Let the magic remain. There's magic in the mystery. Don't ruin the mystery. Right? There's magic in that moment. It's a relationship. Don't, don't, Reduce it 
to a formula, to a mathematical formula, that, you know, a logical formula that makes sense. I want to take it a step further. And this is what the Kabbalists say. This will blow your mind, perhaps. According to Kabbalah and the Hasidic masters, Chabad Hasidic philosophy, every mitzvah, every mitzvah can be performed, can be done from this place of magic. Even the ones that make sense. It's a personal choice. I can choose to do the mitzvah of eating matzah because I understand that this is a perfect, you know, recreation of that Exodus meal. Or I can say, I'm doing it because God wants me to. And you know what? The first option connects me with my head. The second way connects me with the source. Are you with me on that? If I do a mitzvah because it makes sense to me, so whose will am I fulfilling? My own. But if I do a mitzvah because that's what my beloved wants me to do, who am I connecting with? The Abisher, God, God Almighty. This is the deeper understanding of how we're meant to do every mitzvah. We were talking before about whether a chok, the super rational law, should be, should be figured out. But now, I've, I hope, hopefully you've realized, we've gone 180 degrees the other way. Not only are we not understanding the irrational or super rational, we're trying to not understand even the rational. There's an advantage of not understanding. I don't mean not understanding it, but not focusing on the logic of even the mitzvot that we do understand. I want to share with you a text. Hopefully that maybe says this a little bit more clearly than I am. Um, text number 10. The true reasons for mitzvot, all mitzvot, were not revealed for they transcend intellect and understanding. Even in those mitzvot for which there seem to be understandable reasons, these reasons are not the ultimate reasons. Rather, there is a much deeper wisdom contained within one that is above our ability to understand. And this, and this is how we can fulfill every mitzvah. Take a look. Mishpatim, that's category one, like honoring one's parents, giving tzedakah, charity, refraining from theft or robbery, are perfectly logical. On the other hand, chukim have no logical basis at all. Now, logic would dictate that we ought to observe chukim with as much commitment as we observe the mishpatim, i.e., just as we have a natural affinity with mishpatim to the degree that we'd have kept them, even if God hadn't commanded us to, we must similarly observe chukim with equal resonance because they are the command of God. And that's what we were saying the first half of the class, or the first two-thirds of the class, that even the chukim that don't make sense, you should still be passionate like the ones that you understand. But the truth is the other way around. We ought to observe mishpatim, the logical ones, the same with the same reverence and magic as we observe the chukim, i.e. observing them simply because they are the will of God. Ultimately, the main focus of all mitzvot, must, all mitzvot, must be simply to perform the command of God to fulfill His desire because ultimately it is a relationship. And the ultimate, the ultimate declaration of a relationship is I accept you as is. I'm not trying to change you. I'm not trying to understand you. I'm not trying to convince you. I'm not trying to, you know, rationalize or philosophize you. That would be annoying. I don't want to be annoying. I just want to be with you. And so, yeah, you have this quirk and that, I call it quirk. You have this unique thing and that unique desire and that unique like and that unique dislike. And you know what? Because I love you, I'm on board. And even the things I do understand, I don't get in my head and say, oh, I know why they want it. I just say, you know what? This is you. 
and I love you, and that's it. Every mitzvah can be a chok which answers our question. At the beginning of the class, I asked the question, why is the mitzvah, why is the mitzvah, the paraduma called zot chukatat? This is the law of the Torah. And the answer that we've stumbled upon, not stumbled, the answer that we've come to, that we've fallen into, love, right? The answer that we've come to is that every mitzvah is meant to be like the red heifer. That's why red heifer is the law of the Torah, because every mitzvah, like the red heifer, which we do it just because God said so, every mitzvah should be done because God said so, because we're in a relationship, because God wants it. And I want what God wants, because I love God. That is the ultimate level of the mitzvah. And that's why Solomon doesn't understand that God withheld it from Solomon. Because to give Solomon an understanding of every mitzvah would take away the magic. Take away the magic of the mitzvah. So Solomon doesn't understand it. It's called the law of the Torah because every law, even the rational ones, should be done with awe and reverence and love and respect like these chukim. But we're left with one question. So why did God leak the info to Moses? What's with Moses? And the answer is, because what do we know about Moses? What was he the most of all people on earth? He was the most humble. 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 He was the biggest unav. He was the most humble. Right? He was the most humble. And when you have humility, then when you have logical analysis, it's not meant to be, it's not being critical. It's not being annoying. It's not being philosophical. It's just understanding what the other one wants better. Well, understanding better what the other one wants. Let me go back to my picnic example. If the one who you love says, let's go on a picnic. If you say, why a picnic? What are you, what, what are you, th then it's annoying. Stop, the mood is over. I don't want to go on a picnic anymore. But if your response is, I love, you want to go on a picnic? I want to go with you. Tell me, where, where would you like to go? What's the best place? If you're trying to analyze it, not because you want to understand it, but because you want to serve them better, so to speak, then it's not annoying. Then it's truly part of an expression of love. And this is why Moses could handle the reason for the red heifer. Because when he understood the reason, he did it from a place of humility. Humility be, meaning, i.e., it's not about self, it's not about ego. Humility means no ego. So when there's ego involved, and there's rational, rationalizing involved, that could ruin the mood. But when there's no ego, but just a curiosity, I want to learn more about you. It's a pure, egoless curiosity. That's not annoying. That's endearing. That's a beautiful thing. So what's the final, what's the final word here? A few points. Number one, there are different types of mitzvot. Some we get, some we don't get. Point number one. Point number two, it's good to be passionate about a mitzvah. So when we understand it and we're passionate, that's a good thing. Point number three. It's good to just do a mitzvah because God wants and we're in a relationship. So of course we're going to do it. There's beauty and power in the acceptance of a chok. There's so much beauty and power that really every mitzvah should be infused with that underlying spirit. Which is why we shouldn't try to mess with the magic of the super rational laws. Why was Moses given it? Because Moses... Why was he given the, the reason? Because Moses was so humble that his analysis wouldn't lead to a different conclusion. It's like if I'm analyzing why picnic from an ego place, I might decide I don't want to go on a picnic. But if there's no ego, it's all about you. Then we know where this is headed anyway. We're going to go on a picnic. Just asking questions 
that speak to my curiosity and my love and compassion. Let's hold questions for a second. I'm going to formally close it out and then we'll have uh, a, a discussion in a moment. But just in the interest of time, let me close it out. So what's the moral of the story? We are in a relationship with Hashem. And it's sometimes hard to imagine, you know, I don't, I don't see God, I don't hear God, maybe I don't feel God always. So what kind of relationship is this? How does this work? That's really for another class to understand how we're in a relationship with God. But know this, you and I are absolutely in a relationship with God. And thus, the mitzvah plays a critical role. And the mitzvah that we don't understand plays perhaps the most critical role. It's how invested are you in the relationship? Are you invested even when it doesn't make sense? Because if, if you're only invested when it makes sense, that's not much of a relationship with the other. That's a lot about ego. That's about, I'm comfortable as long as it makes sense. Well, then that, that's not about them, that's about you. Are we invested, are we in it, this relationship, to the point that we're ready to jump in? Faith versus logic. Logic is grand, but faith is a hundred, hundred grand. My friends, thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. Let's jump in, jump in without overthinking, and just do it. All right, let's take questions and comments. Chazen Ben, jump in. All right, so, so two quick things. Uh, first is a statement, and the next is a question. So the statement I have to say is I was, grow I was very fortunate to grow up in a minion of gentlemen who were really, I mean, they may not have been totally observant, but they had faith. And so one of the very colorful people that I grew up with was a, a gentleman in Detroit by the name of Sammy Zacks, who was in the scrap metal business, tough guy. But uh, he would always, his big statement was so appropriate for today's Torah lesson was, and what you were talking about, he says, I wear the pants of my family. And when I come home from Sunday morning minion and my wife says, let's go on a picnic, I bang my fists on the table and I say, we're going on a picnic. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so the second, that's uh, good. That's, that's a good, healthy relationship. Very appropriate <laughs> yes. to what you were saying. Yes. All right. So, so the, the second question, and the, a serious question for me, um, and that is, so is there, a, it has to be to do with my upbringing, because my upbringing said, uh, people that influenced me said, Minhag is more important than anything else. But, uh, uh, pertaining to tonight's lesson, is a hug equal to a mishpat? Good question. The way I understand it, when all the dust settles, when all the dust settles, it's yesh bazeh masha'ein bazeh. One has what the other one doesn't have. And each one has a myla quality that the other one's not going to have. So I want to go back to one of my early examples. I, you're asking the million dollar question. So new, which one is it? Look, I'll just, I'll just take your million dollars. You know? Yeah, <laughs> perfect. The check's in the mail. It's uh, it's come. It's 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 in the blockchain. It's coming in Bitcoin. Look, here's the deal. Um, when it comes to a mitzvah, like 
you know, Shabbat candles. If somebody says, oh, here's what you should meditate on when you light Shabbat candles, and you're like, wow, I love that meditation. Oh, when I can't wait to light Shabbat candles this week, Friday night, 18 minutes before sunset, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to feel good about it, and I'm going to feel my home filled with light and warmth. It's going to be amazing. That's really cool. It's beautiful. And, and, and a person can be really connected in that experience. But the challenge with that is that what are you feeling in that moment? Again, there's an advantage, but there's also a disadvantage. What's the disadvantage? That we're stuck in ourselves. How I feel about it, how I perceive it, how I enjoy it. So who's the mitzvah for? Me? My satisfaction, my enjoyment, my sense of serenity and warmth. Okay, so where's God in this? So I'm very present in the, I'm very present in this mitzvah when I understand it. But is God present? That's that's the that's the that's the the downside. The flip side is the other side is the chok, where I don't understand it, I don't have a meditation for it. I'm just doing it because God said so. But there's a purity in that. There's a purity in that acceptance. There's a purity in that experience. And it's all about God. Because if it was up to me, I would not be doing this. The only reason why I'm doing it is because of God. So there's, so in that mitzvah experience, there's only God and, well, there's more God and less me. So when it's something that I understand, there's more me, less God. When it's a mitzvah I don't understand, there's more God and less me. It's more about the other. So look, you know, there's no, there's no sin to enjoy a mitzvah, but there's ego. And I would say, thank God, Baruch Hashem, we have the mitzvot, like the chukim, that keep us in check, that are, that are um, a reality check, a reminder of what, what it's all about. It's not, it's not about me, right? The mitzvot are not just about us. It's not as, as uh, the, who said it, the maral maybe? It's not a self-help book. It also does self-help. It helps self. But it's, it's a love story. It's a story about a relationship. And so let's put the other first. So a chok more naturally puts the other first. A mishpat naturally puts us first. Is it bad? Is it good? Yesh It's like pros and cons. By the way, talk about paralysis by analysis. I mean, we could analyze this all night and be like, well, which one's better? All right, they both have advantages. Um, Ray, did you have a question? Yeah, I'm going back to what I asked you before. And, and, I, and ego's not part of it. Yeah. But two individuals interpret the hope a different way. But it can affect you if you're going with their interpretation. Yeah, no, I, I hear you, I hear you. But you're asking a question about methodology of halacha or methodology of minhag, as, as, as Ben mentioned. Right, you're talking about when there's a machloket of interpretation, when there's a dispute, so how do we know what's right? There's a system for that, there's a system. Achre rabim lahatot, after the majority we go. That's the, it's the consensus. So in Talmudic times, everything until the era of the Talmud was clear. Everything that was debated was debated. There was a clear record as to exactly what the laws were. And there was a halacha, there was a psaq, there was a definitive. The things, the questions that came up after the Talmud, so in the last 1,500 years or so, you, ha- you don't have as clear consensus, but you have more or less a consensus. But this gives rise 
to different traditions because there were different consensuses, consensi, whatever. There were different consensuses in different parts of the Jewish world, which is why you get distinctions between Ashkenazic Jews and Sephardim. I'm not going to weigh in on any specific one because I feel like that would be, you know, possibly taking a side on something that I don't feel I, I need to at this point right now and tonight. But, but without getting into a specific, the reason why, well, I'm going to get into a specific, that's, that's a neutral specific, right? Like um, Ashkenazim on Passover, Ashkenazim don't eat um, kidneyot, right? Legumes, beans, rice, those sort of things. But Sfardim do. Hold on, what's halacha? What does God want? So number one, go ask God. Number two, we have to figure it out because it's not clear in Torah. It's not clear. Um, but there were different customs. The Ashkenazi rabbis lumped it for whatever reason. They made a takana, gzer, whatever it is. They, they decided to, um, you know, or, or minhag. I, I'm not sure where exactly that one falls. They decided we're not going to do it. That was, the Ashken- that was the majority of the Ashkenazic. Ashkenazic, by the way, is, is Eastern European Jewry. That was the majority of, of Eastern European Jewry or European Jewry. But the Sephardim, the Spain and Northern, Northern Africa, those communities, they had a different consensus. So here, here's what I'm trying to say. When there ceased to be a, a unified center of Jewish life, let, let, me, let me back up. Back in the day, there was a unified center of Jewish life in Israel. That's it, right? The Jews were in Israel. That's where they were. Then they split, some in Israel, some in Babel, Babylonia. But within those two places, it was two places, and they had their centers, their academies, and if questions came up, they voted, they debated, they voted, and that was it, that was the halacha. But now you have a global situation. Jews are spread out all over the place. So the majority of rabbis in one community might have one way of looking at it, and the majority of rabbis in another community have another way of looking at it. Right? This is what makes things a little bit complicated or challenging, but you have to go by minhagamakum, by the, by, the, by the custom or by the, by the assumption of the place. Well, I mean, when I say you have to, that's typically what's done. I'm not going to get into the, the mechanics of if I came from one place and I moved to another place, then where do I go? This is, a, this is really like almost an endless topic. But that's the, short, the, the bottom line is the things that are clear are clear. But the questions that have come up since clarity kind of came to the fore sometimes are questions. Sometimes not. I mean, even things as basic as the definition of life. You know, I mean, the end of life. What is the end of life? Is today debated? Is brain death considered to be a valid form of death according to Jewish law? Depends who you ask. Depends who you ask. So, so what I'm trying to say is that, you know, there wasn't a possibility for the concept of brain death before 50 years ago or whatever it is, right? It wasn't possible because you, you didn't have a ventilator. You couldn't keep someone alive. You couldn't keep someone alive artificially, so to speak, on a machine. So, and by the way, I believe it was the Harvard Ad Hoc Committee from Harvard Medical Center, Harvard Medical school had an ad hoc committee in the 19, I want to say 60s or 70s, maybe 70s. They got together, they convened, top doctors and ethicists in the U.S. And part of their agenda was to allow for there to be a concept of brain death. You know why? To allow for the harvesting of organs. 
organ transplantation. Because how? Because no ethicist would ever say you pull out a beating heart from one person to save another person. So how do you ever have a heart transplant? If you can say that even when the heart's beating, the person is technically dead, well, then you can lodge, then you can ethically justify. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does this make sense what I'm saying? So the Harvard Ad Hoc Committee had an agenda. I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying they were wrong or, or not ethical, but they had, it stated, it's clear, documented. They had an agenda. They wanted to open up the door for, um, for essential organs to, for trans harvesting and transplantation. And that includes the heart. And a heart, well, today, it's now more possibilities are opening up. But not that long ago, or even most of the time today, a heart has to be still beating to harvest as a, as a, as a viable uh, transplant. Right? And so, but how do you pull out a beating heart? But if you say that brain death is, is death, so you could say the person's dead. I, the heart's beating, they're still dead. So I can ethically, morally, legally pull out a beating heart Put it in someone else and not blink an eye. Why? Because the, the person, the donor, was legally dead. Halacha, rabbis today have the question. That's nice that the medical community came up with that. But what, is Judy, what does halacha say about that? What is brain death? Is it actually death? Or is it, if, the heart's pump, if the heart's beating anyway, by any way, is the person still alive? I'm not weighing in on it. As you know, I'm not, I'm, not gonna, I'm not weighing in right now on this. We've had classes on this, etc., medical ethics. But it's a question, and not all modern rabbis agree. And it's a pretty fierce debate. And by the way, it's a pretty relevant debate. It's like yes or no. It's a pretty relevant debate. It's like, what do, what do we do right now? Someone's life is potentially on the line, or not. What, what do we do? Depends who you ask. How could there be such ambiguity in Jewish law? Because the concept didn't exist. The possibility didn't exist before a few decades ago. So there's no Talmudic discussion. There's no biblical discussion, certainly. There's no early halachic discussion on this, early Jewish legal discussion. It just wasn't in the lexicon. It wasn't a possibility. So now you have to look at original cases and original rationales for case law and try to decipher what would Jewish law say in this case. Now you have different opinions. Anyway, I'm just giving you an example of uh, where things get a little bit complicated. But look, by and large, most of the stuff we know, most of the stuff is clear, right? Shabbos candles, kosher, tefillin, mezuzah, matzah, sukkah, not wearing shatnas, well, linen, these things are clear. Don't eat from a fruit tree the first three years. That we get. So, so let's do it. Because we understand it? Sure. Because God said so? Sure. Because of both? If you're Moses? Sure. Anyway. All right. That's it for tonight, my friends. Um, thank you, Donna. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll see you soon. Lila Tov. Don't, um, don't forget Sunday. Very special. Sunday at 7 p.m. Escape from Cairo. Young man who grew up being taught hate turns his life around and becomes a human rights advocate, an advocate on behalf of the very people that he was taught to hate. He grew up a hater of Jews and Israel, and he now advocates for Jews and Israel. Join us Sunday night, 7 p.m. online for Escape from Cairo. 
You don't want to miss it. A riveting tale. He's an amazing speaker. Um, more information on our website, intownjewishacademy.org. All right. Oh, also, I should mention, we started a course last night called Curious Tales of the Talmud. If you are not yet on that course, you want to get on that course because it's pretty fabulous. All right. That's just, that's just a scheduling note. If you missed the first class, I got recordings I could send you. If you want to jump in and join, let me know. I know a guy. All right. Have a good night. We'll see you guys. Take care. Lila Tov. Lila Tov. Bye, everybody.